everybody. Welcome back to the Adam Nitty Podcast. Once again, I'm your host, Adam Nitty, and today we have, boy, we've got a special celebrity musician in the house today. We've got Tom Breckline. Yay! And uh, this is this has been a long-awaited uh, interview for me, and I am I'm so fortunate to be able to say that I've per- performed and, and toured with with Tom. And for those of you who uh, who might not know that the history, um, Tom and I uh, toured together with uh, Kenny Loggins for a long time. But but Tom's Tom's bio reads like a uh, a who's who of musical legends. Um, he, I mean, if you just look at his discography, it's pretty ridiculous. Um, Chick Corea, Wayne Shorter, Robin Ford, uh, you know, Frank Gambale. I mean, the, the list goes on and on and on. So, you know, it's funny. I had a, an interview yesterday with um, with uh, Andy Wood, guitar player, and he made a reference to who he calls the the one percenters, you know, like the, the, the absolute top shelf of the top shelf musicians. And Tom, that would be you. Oh. Welcome to the show, man. Thank you. Thanks, Adam. <laughs> <laughs> it's great to have you here, and, and you're in your studio today, which is fantastic. Um, uh, I I definitely want to get into some of the details and nerdy aspects of that, but um, I I want to I, I to kind of start at a little bit closer to the to the beginning for you because you've you've had a um, an amazingly illustrious career, and I, and I'm just curious. Uh, for for people that are that are listening and watching, what was what was your first big break? Because obviously, you know these are these are these are musicians and and tours and things that um, you know these these don't come to to just anybody. So what was it that finally got you in the game, if you will? Well, my first big break was was Chick. That was your first. <laughs> Yeah, you know, like, oh, my career started with uh, Chick Corea. I mean, that's that's incredible. Like, you know, hey, you know, like I'm walking down the street and Chick goes, "Hey, you want to play?" I go, "Yeah, sure." <laughs> that's exactly how it happened. You know, it's just hey, you know, I just hey, I play drums and you should hire me. No, I know. Um, <clears throat> I mean, you know, I mean, I, I, you know, I played in bands on Long Island. I mean, and then I, I then I. Started doing what's called club dates, weddings and bar mitzvahs. <laughs> and that made my money to buy records and equipment and whatever. And I worked for Stephen Scott Music. <laughs> and we were the very hip whatever. Anyway, <clears throat> so, and then playing with local bands. And there were all these great musicians playing. And at the time, you know, um, I know I'm, I'm going, veering off a little bit, but I'll answer the question, you know. No, please. This is this is all so, great. Um, uh, you know, at the time, like, I guess you'd say jazz rock fusion, jazz rock, whatever, you know, uh, was new. You know, Bitches Brew came out, what, 1969, I think. And, and then, but most important, uh, you know, uh, Tony Williams' group, Emergency with McLaughlin and uh, you know, the organ trio thing. And, um, and also then, I mean, then later, I mean, the Mahavishnu Orchestra, Return to Forever, Weather Reports. I mean, that was all around, you know? So me being, I mean, it's, let's not just go to 18. 18 at the time, you just, you know, you, that's what you, and then you, 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 you learn that, 
you know, and then you backtrack. You go, oh, wait a minute. What's this? Oh, what's this? Four and more. You know, Miles Davis, you know, but you already know about bitches Bruce. So then you go back, you go back, you go back and the Miles Davis stuff and the John Coltrane stuff and, and whatnot. And then, but then you're, you're also listening to the Beatles here and you're listening to yeah. Chicago, Blood, Sweat, Tears. And you know what I mean? Yeah. The Franklin, the Four Tops, uh, Gladys Knight and the Pips. Yeah. You know what I mean? The British invasion when you're growing up, you know, so all this goes, you know, and, and then all of a sudden you're, your heroes, I mean, like Bernard Purdy, you see them in New York, you, you get old enough to go into the city, and then you see your heroes like Bernard Purdy, Steve Gadd, Chris Parker, Rick Morata, all these guys that played on records, that you did, and then you go in, and you can just go into the cities, which is about a, 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 an hour or less drive, or if you want to take the train, and you can go see these guys, and, and then once you see those guys, after you're done, you could go down to Sweet Basil's for the price of a beer. You can see Eddie Gomez and Al Foster play with Jack Wilkins. You can just sit at the bar. This is after you've seen, like, maybe stuff. So then you go, like, hey, let's go to this, you know. Wow. Or go to McKell's and see John Trope with, you know, Steve sitting right there. And Rick's up there. And Don Grolnick's playing piano. And Sam Burgess is playing trombone. And I mean, it's it's and Dave Spinoza, I, I, or that Mike Minieri, see Dave Spinoza, whatever. You see all those guys that you hear on records too. So that combined, you go. I mean, you basically go, yeah, I want to do that or whatever. So, but getting back to how I got hooked up with Chick, you know, like also we had guys that I knew that were of my age that were really playing their asses off. I mean, you know, um, one guy in particular, well, two guys. Well, I'll just name a few. Jeff Hirschfield. At 18, the guy played like Philly Joe Roy. He played brushes like Philly Joe. He played like Roy Hayne. I mean, the combinations. And he had his own thing, but he was, my gosh, he was, it, was, it was amazing. And uh, along with Gary Smullyan, who was like one of the top Barry players in New York City, who used to play alto. And there was a guy, Gary Haas, who produced many things in New York, great upright player. These guys were like 19, wow. 19, 20. And they were playing like old souls, man. I mean, these mm. guys were like, they were pretty ridiculous. And I mean, plus the fact that Jeff, the drummer was talking about, and still in New York, could read fly shit, you know, and, and, <laughs> and still like, I mean, just. It was so I said, man, I better get my shit in gear, you know. You were obviously so immersed. Fusion shit, you know. Yeah, you were obviously so immersed in 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 all of this incredible virtuosic energy, you know, where you were, and and so that was rubbing off on you, obviously. And that's kind of like what it's like in a lot of, I wouldn't say small, in a lot of towns. Back then, you just didn't see it because we we didn't have the internet, you know. (laughs) And so, and probably it was better that it was that way because you had a chance to just digest everything, you know. Sure. So you, you know, I mean, so there was plus the fact that it was right next to New York City, and the big dream was to move into New York City, which we call town, to move into town, get a loft, and starve and play music all the time, (laughs) get it going. And uh, uh, Jeff was one of the first that. That we all knew. We went. Hear about Jeff? He moved into town. 
you know, it's like it's kind of loft with a bunch of guys. And it's like we're like, whoa, it was like a badge of honor. Anyway, but that inspired me to go like, I need to learn how to play trio for some. I mean, I wanted to learn how to play because uh, Jeff was great at that and is great at that. Uh, and so he also studied with Ed Sulf when Ed Sulf was in, I think he was in Westchester County. Uh, the great Ed Sulf would taught at uh, North Texas. Anyway, so I know I'm going around the world here. I have a habit of doing that. No, no, go on. So anyway, um, so I took lessons uh, uh, with uh, uh, a piano player, Mike Garson at the time. And so... You know, he laid a bunch of records on me, and we played duo in his living room because I wanted to know, instead of learning from a drummer's perspective, I wanted to know what it was like from a piano player's perspective, you know? So we'd play, and then he'd say certain things, and then i adjust. Well, one day, he he had a, he had synthesizers were just coming into the fold. I mean, they'd already been there, but now they're becoming more accessible. So he bought a cork. Little little cork, it looks like a little strip. And he says, Tom, I just want to test this out. Would you just hang with me and we jam for a minute? So we started doing, uh, I guess, for the lack of a better description, uh, Latin esque fusion. I know Latin is like saying Oriental rug, you know, it's like (laughs) Korean, you have that. It's such a generality to say that is like, I apologize to the, you know, the Latin music community, but <laughs> private, you know. Um, but it was like jazz rock. But there was all kinds of stuff. I mean, in in fusion, there was there was, the, you know, the the Latin Afro Cuban, whatever you want to call it. It was all mishmash in there, you know. And plus, I was listening to Chick, and then I was also but there's the rock thing, and the, and the uh, and there's a little bit of R and B in there, and there's the jazz thing. So we started playing, and I started playing this, and Mike's looking at me like this. I go, what are you looking at? He goes, man, I didn't know you could play that stuff like that. I go, well, I'm not here for that, you know? <clears throat> and I'm playing all this stuff, and we're, like, bouncing off of each other and going nuts. And, and he was scheduled to do uh, the Stanley Clark record, The Modern Man. And he was also good friends with Chick. So he went to uh, – oh, yeah, he said – he said, what you might want to do is um, put a demo together. And so I put a demo together with a friend of mine. His name is now Peter Z, but his name is Peter, his name is, then was Peter Zinsmeister, great keyboard player. And uh, we were going to put a group together and try and open up for groups at the bottom line. So that turned out to be a, um, a, a demo for that. But I was going to send that to Chick. And, uh, so, but I think it was from that jam session with Mike and I, he put the boom box up, a boom box. For those of you who don't know what a boom box <laughs> it was a cassette, cassettes, cassette player, you know, big thing carried big speakers and all in one. And so he recorded it, you know, in the, well, in the middle of the living room and we recorded one of our jams and, uh, when he got back, he recommended me to Chick. He says, look, if you're looking, he was looking for a drummer. Uh, 
and this was after the Music Magic Tour, I believe, uh, with Return to Forever. And uh, so um, that made it to Chick's office, basically, that tape. I think either through Mike or I don't think I sent it. This is the boombox recording. The boombox recording. Yeah, fantastic. Then um, I was... I was, I was ditching. Uh, I was, I was cutting class at Hofstra University. Although before going to Hofstra, I went to Nassau Community College, which I learned a lot. But anyway, so I'm ditching class. My mom calls. She goes, Chickaria's office just called. No, 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 that was something else. No, that was something else. Excuse me. So they set up an audition with me. Chick, he was coming through, and I, uh, I knew all the other stuff, but we set up an audition. And I think it was at Mike's. It was at Mike's house, and it was a six-hour audition because I was the only drummer there. But the bass players that came through were Anthony Jackson, wow, Ken Smith, wow, yeah, the Ken Smith bassist, Rick Laird, and I believe that was it. Yeah, each two hours each, yeah. And um, and we didn't do... <clears throat> Mad Hatter was still in the can, but I received a test pressing of that. And uh, Friends wasn't mixed yet. So the first tune I auditioned on was The One Step from Friends. And then we did that, stuff I didn't even know about, which is... Fair enough, you know. I mean, <clears throat> who wants to know how I, you know, without listening to it? And they did that went okay. And then, so did he just start playing the tune and just say, "Hey"? He goes, "This is give me the chart, put it in front." He goes, "It's sort of like a little, little thing, you know, and just let's just play." We have two, three, four. Oh, do do dee do do. So that's the first time I heard the one step. Wow. So we played that, and that was fine. And then, I guess you'd call it the modal section or the Coltrane section. I, I I call it a cappuccino. You know, you know that you know that record. You know the record. Yeah, yeah. The part that goes, you know, right? Yeah. So the part that we did was the part that was ba ba da 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 um, do 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 off the Van Hatter record, you know. Uh, and then I don't know what else we did. I think we did a blues or something, and that was it. And we did the same thing with each bass eat over and over again. By the end of the day, I was like, I was exhausted. I mean, wow. mentally, and I didn't know. And then um, didn't say anything. I said, oh well, you know, I gave it my all, you know. But I didn't think I did too well. And he said. I said, all right, Tom, thanks. He goes, we'll talk soon. I went, okay. So now we get to the point where I'm skipping school. And then I'm, and uh, my mother calls. She goes, check office just called. <laughs> 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 he wants to go to Carnegie Hall tonight. 
but I got two tickets for you. And it was the first Chicken Herbie tour. Wow. The very first one. So I take my Delta 88 and my, my sloppy jalopy and <laughs> run on down to, you know, get to Howard Johnson's 10 bucks for the whole day, boom, you know, and then zip on down to Carnegie Hall, you know. And uh, they wait for me. I got, I'm in the box seat and I got, you know, Chick's keyboard tech at the time, Rory Kaplan comes in. He goes, come on, Tom, let's go. He's kind of my age. And, and I meet, at the time, Ron Moss was uh, managing him. And I'm up to this box seat. It's like, and I'm going, what the hell just happened here? Wow. <clears throat> so, uh, and all my heroes, you see Dave Liebman there, McLaughlin. I mean, all these guys. I oh, mean, my gosh. I'm there to see this thing, you know. Wow. I'm like, I mean, this shell shocks, right? Hmm. So then I'm hanging out with Chick and everybody, and nobody's telling me anything. Nobody's telling me anything, you know. And then at the end of the night, it says, Chick says to me, hey, Tom, can you hang out tomorrow? I'm like, yeah, sure. You know? <laughs> so I come the next day. Nobody's saying anything to me. I hang out the whole day with Chick and Rory and all these guys, you know. Nobody's saying anything. I'm like, and Ron Moss is having a field day with this. He's, like, laughing at me. I go, what are you laughing at? I mean, I'm like. You know, I'm 20 years old. I don't know. I mean, you know, I'm just like a freaking guy from Long Island, you know? It's oh my like, gosh. I mean, I'm from the country, you know? So it's like, which is only an hour away <laughs> from the rock. Wow. So, so the next, so, <laughs> so now we go, so that night, we go back to Carnegie Hall, and uh, there's always a break in between, you know? This is like first half, 15-minute intermission, second half. So they do the first thing, and we go backstage. He says, Chick wants to talk to you. I said, okay, well, maybe this is it. I'm going to find out either way, you know. And he says, uh, Tom, uh, could you bring your drums to this address? <laughs> Everything's so mysterious. I say, uh, no, Chick, you've already auditioned me already. It's right. <laughs> I'm not going to go back to Long Island and da, da, da. Yeah. I said, yeah, sure, so. After I talk to my dash down the street, get to the car, go back to Long Island, put all my drums in the back of the car, and go to this address. And um, so bring my drums up the stairs, blah, blah, blah. And there's Jeff Berlin. And it's me and Jeff Berlin. And, and so we play, you know, we, oh, that's right. We also played Sicily. That's right. We the first audition, you know. And um, I think the main factor was the coda. You know, well, Sicily goes. Whatever. But the but the the thing was the coda was. Do that right. So, I guess that was the game changer or something. You know, so we we did it, and of course, you know, Jeff is like nailing it. You know, and Jeff was pretty intimidating back then. And to me. You know, and um, so, and he was great. And he's going, he's going, oh, you got the gig. I said, I said, I don't know, Jeff. I said, you definitely got the gig, you know, because he was nailing everything. Wow. Hmm. And so anyway, Chick takes him into the other room and I could see them and he starts talking with Jeff. I'm going, oh, he's talking to him. Might as well just go home. So. Uh, Chick says, he goes, I'll call you in a, I'll call you in a few days. 
He's trying to tell me shit. Wow, know? unreal. And I'm like going like, what the hell's going on here? So so I take Jeff home, and it was it was in January, and it was really cold. I mean, and he lived in Harlem back then. And the ice, the streets were icy and potholed and da da da. So I so like a good guy, I figured, okay. Well, like a sorry, some of that. But I said, I'll take you home. So I go to Harlem and drop him off. I go home and and it's, oh, it must have been the end of January. It had to have been. So anyway, a week rolls by, and then I get this, uh, war- a warning from Chick's office saying, this is in February, that Chick's going to be calling today. It was February 10th. and So this was another month after? Well, no, this is like about two weeks. Two weeks after the second audition. After the second audition. Yeah. Gotcha. Or maybe a week. No, it had to be two weeks. So, um, anyway, to make a long story short, I shoveled a lot of snow that day. Only one phone in the house. Two older sisters. I tell them, don't touch the phone. <laughs> Have a conversation. Make it short. I'm the yeah. youngest in the family. You know? and, and, you know, I finish shoveling snow, and then all of a sudden it snows again. I got to go back out and shovel snow again. Oh, gosh. So then at 10 o'clock on February 10th, chick calls. <clears throat> he goes, Hey, Tom, how's it going? Yeah, it's going great, Chick. And I'm figuring, well, here it comes. He's just going to say, thanks, pal. But, you know, no dice. So he says, so listen, I want you to come on the road with me. And I went, I said, uh, sure. <laughs> Tour manager's going to call you what you need to get, blah, blah, blah. And I want you to listen to some Tito Puente. I want you to listen to Chilla, uh, uh, Eddie Palmieri and, and uh, check out more of uh, Love Supreme. And like that. And, uh, and we started, I believe we started March 4th. We started rehearsals for uh, uh, a three-month world tour. Europe, Australia. Wow. Uh, Europe, yeah. Europe, Australia, Japan, and then a festival tour at the end during the summer or the spring months in the U.S. Wow. And who was the band? Who, who was the entire uh, the band? band? Back then, it was a 13-piece <coughs> band. And oh, was, wow. But the trumpet section was uh, Alva Zudi, Bob Satola, and then Ron Moss played trombone. Jim Pugh was on trombone. Oh, wow. Uh, Dave Liebman, tenor. And flute, uh, Chick, Gail, Rick Laird, uh, myself, and then a string quartet. Charlie Veal, Judy Geist, Carol Shive. Did I say Charlie Veal? Mm-hmm. Charlie Veal, Judy Geist, Carol Shive. I think that was it. Wow. Oh, Paula Hochhalter on cello. And uh, and then myself. And uh, we did everything from the semi-acoustic Return to Forever to the electric Return to Forever. Mm. We did stuff from all three solo records. You know, started the started the show off with Night Sprite and ended with a with a uh, the um, always the encore would be the Duel of the Jester and the Tyrant from the uh, Romantic Warrior. Right? Wow. And, uh, yeah, there's a lot of stories on that one. You know, I mean, that was sort of fly by the seat of my pants like I usually do, you know. So wow. And then I went on to play with him for until 82, you know, on, you know, and then on and off and then uh, played with him again in 2004, 2006. 
But in between, like, you know, with Dave, Michael couldn't make him call me up and do the acoustic band or something like that. Amazing. Amazing. Yeah, so, and then, of course, from there in 78, then I went on to play with Joe Farrell and Wayne Shorter and Al DiMiola and yada, yada, yada. Wow. So that started the whole thing, you know. And, and then, uh, but, I mean, that, that I had down. The music business part, no. <laughs> what I was doing, I like all young guys, you know, I did some right things, I did some wrong things, I misbehaved, I I atoned. <laughs> uh, I apologized, you know, or uh, you know, and uh, you know, like we all do when you know you're really young like that, you know, yeah. you get all that shit thrown in your face like that. Sure. So once you did that, the the first chick tour, did that kind of open the floodgates for you in terms of people? All of a sudden, you're on the map, and now all these other artists, just by virtue of association with Chick, now suddenly want you playing or, or touring with them, or, or were those no, completely no, separate? Got, no, you still had to uh, get some sort of reputation locally, you know, because you're only playing with this guy, right? You know, uh, yeah. I mean, you go like, "Hey, play with this guy," but the thing is, can you can you do a recording session? Can you play on this guy's gig? Can you play on this other guy's gig? Can you switch? Uh, it's like anything, you know, I mean, uh, I think sometimes it would have been better if I had come up gradually and got a reputation, the, but I did, all of a sudden it was like 10 and that's cool too. Yeah. Cause musically I learned a lot of stuff. Sure. You know? Musically it's, you know, that was the great thing, you know? And then from there I worked it because I, like I said, that's what I'm saying. I was, I didn't know how to promote myself properly. I'm not talking about schmooze and go, hey, hire me. You know? <laughs> hey, you want me to wash your car for you? You know, like, no. Um, I just thought that exactly like, you know, I'll play with your career, so that should be enough, you know? Yeah, right. It's not. You have to. I mean, you have, I mean, call, if you want to call it schmooze, but you've got to promote yourself. You've got yeah. to make people aware that you're there. You still have to make people aware that you can play. Yes. I mean, not play like, hey, look at me, I got you, but that you can, you can steer a rhythm section, is the drummer's, you can steer a rhythm section, make it feel good, make the other guy feel good. Yeah. It's interesting how, it's interesting how success in a certain um, context or or musical scenario can both work for you and against you. You know, it's, it's like... you, you could have this, this great gig with this incredible respected artist. And then some people will look at that as, oh, this is somebody I want to, you know, to hire for my thing. And then other people may look at that as like, oh, this is, that person would never play with me. They're, they're doing this. They're involved with right. these things. It's, it's a weird, <clears throat> excuse me, it's a weird place to, to be in when people have different interpretations of your accessibility. Right, right. Uh, yeah. Especially when I'm, I guess when I moved here to Austin, you know, it's like, really, you want to play? I said, yeah, I want to play. <laughs> you know, it's like, so, but, um, and then you get people, you know, like, yeah, show me what you could do. Uh, yeah. You know, all that stuff, you know, jazz jury and, you know, the whole gamut. That's just normal stuff, you know? Yeah. What was the, um, obviously, you know, you, you know, you that's held, okay, by the way, you know, sure, sure. You, you held the, 
the, the Kenny Loggins share, you know, for, for so long, what, um, obviously genre wise, that's a very huge departure from, from Chick Corea. Um, what was the beginning of that relationship? Um, and, and kind of what, what got you in that, in that Avenue? Well, I, uh, was, well, I mean, but si since then I was doing as well as doing jazz stuff. I mean, I was doing recordings that were, I guess you'd say they were pop and rock, you know? Uh, and then I, I had worked with, um, I mean, I've been a Roscoe and I had been working Roscoe Beck and I had been working with Robin Ford on the group that we had together called the blue line, Robin Ford, the blue line. So yeah. we were rocking out there, you know, great ensemble. That is. Yeah. Thanks. So we, so, so I got this, well, to make, I was working with Natalie Cole with CJ Powell, uh, Great, great tour manager, production manager. Uh, none better. You know, he's retired now, but any great friends. You know CJ, right? Did Absolutely. You know yeah, when I first started playing yeah. with you with, with Kenny, CJ right. was the guy. So, hey, ooh, ooh. <laughs> well, what are you going to do? <laughs> Get out of my. Maybe. There he is. Okay, great. I mean, everything's taken care of, you know. Oh, man, for sure. To nuts, you know? Yeah. But anyway, CJ was on the net. He tour managed the Natalie Cole tour. And I remember, um, oh, yeah, and then at the time, Chick had called. Was it that? No, it wasn't that. Anyway, I was looking to do some just just looking for some more work to expand the work. This was cute. What year was this? It was like, oh my God. Um, 2005? Something like that. And, and I've been I think I've been working for the Manhattan Transfer as well. And I, so I, I called up CJ. I said, how's it going? I found out he was working with, you know, he says, oh, I've been working with Kenny Loggins. He goes, hey, listen, why don't you come down? Because he's always looking for subs, as you know, Kenny. During that time, it's like, you know, five subs or three <laughs> subs. You know, you know and um, so uh, I went down there and met Kenny and yada, yada, yada. And then I went down and played for him. Uh, and he liked it. So I got the number three spot. <laughs> and, you know, I know. All due respects to Kenny, it was fine. I got the I got the number two. You know, just hey, sure. you know, he's got. You know, I think it's DVD was his first pick, and then uh, it had Chris Rallis, and then there was me. Fair enough, you know, these guys were there prior. Sure, <laughs> and they're they're great players. So then one thing led to another, and I think within about a year, year and a half. Then I became I, I got to be the first I got to be first call, you know, or maybe more than that maybe yeah maybe I don't know who knows. <laughs> so I think I think it was around 2006 I get spot dates that's right, mm -hmm. and then 2007 he asked me to come on the summer tour, and I think Paulie Paul Peterson was playing bass mm -hmm. at the time. Shem Shem von Schreck had left for a minute and um so then it, you know and then i was playing with him ever since and then for eight years 
bada boom, bada ping. Yeah. And then we met. Yeah. Shem came back, and then Shem sometimes, and then when, and then you played, and then we had a great time, and then Shem came back again. <laughs> then I left. Then Shem left. <laughs> and then you came back. And then, you know, and Scott's been there the whole time. Yeah. Well, not in the beginning. I, I was there. Scott Bernard, great guitar player. Yeah. We, oh, yeah. And from there, out of Nashville as well. And, and uh, so that's basically is because of CJ Powell. Yeah. Very and cool. And the hard work that you you do to, to, uh, to get there. I mean, the rehearsal for me the first time was in Bermuda at a sound check. And I learned all the stuff like we all did. Yeah. Yeah. Here are the ISO. Yeah. Here are the isolated things. Learn this. That's exactly that's exactly how it was for me. I, I showed up to the first gig, no right. no rehearsals. It, it was it was sound check and and it was uh That's all of us, you know. That's just how it how it goes. Um sometimes passed through that camp in those years. Right. And it was like just show up. And you showed yeah. up and you knew and you made sure you knew your stuff. Yeah. Take or swim. You know? One of the things that um makes you such a such a great drummer and, and musician is how you're able and, and people are already picking this up like just from hearing who you've worked with who you've recorded with who you've toured with when you're when you're crossing from genre to genre it's like it, you you've always you've always played for the gig you, you you play the perfect parts for for every artist and for every gig you obviously have the the chops and and the facility to play with the top of the top you know chicorias um and then you're doing more of you know the the pop side and rock side kenny Loggins, etc uh what 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 is your basic philosophy or or approach when when it comes to looking at different gigs? Do you have to kind of do you have to sort of establish who you are as a drummer first, figure out what that is, and then do you adjust the, to those gigs, or are you naturally um, uh, being a chameleon just just out of your natural senses going into these these shows? Like how does that how does that work for you? Well, it's a combination of both. But the first thing to do is give what's needed and wanted. You find out, you know, or you play and they say, do this, don't do that. I mean, that, that's cut dry, but I'm just saying, sure. and then you go, sure. I, I mean, in other words, what are you looking for? You know, <clears throat> and I previously, I know how to play rock. I know how to play R&B to an extent. I know how to, I know how to play a shuffle. I know how to play blues to a certain extent. I know how to, I mean, and, but also it's from years of, playing with people who know more than you do about mm. the genre mm -hmm. and then opening your ears and just fitting in to make a groove. The simplicity of it is pretty much that. Yeah. And then if I play too much, or too less, they'll let you know they go stop playing so much. I go, fine, great. You know? Yeah. But being able to listen and, you know, that old cliche serve the music, you know, I mean, I haven't done that all the time, but if people remind me, I go, Oh yeah. Okay, fine. Yeah. But you have to sit back and let that happen, you know. I mean, there's some things you might disagree with, but you go, okay, yeah, fine. But then you put your personality and everything, and it, it might, I'm not sounding esoteric, am I? No, this is great. This is exactly. You, you put your thing in, I mean, you playing that part or whatever, you know. Yeah. Or can you play this part? Like, we go through that when we do uh, this virtual stuff, you know, the remote tracks. Yeah. You know? You know, you lay down a track that, in your opinion, is like great, and they go, "Well, could you do this?" But you, and you got to step aside, and you got to go, "Okay." So then you play that part, but 
you put you into it. Yeah. And then they're saying, um, <clears throat> you know, play some interesting rhythm or something. No, you just put your feel into it. You make yeah. it well, and that's whatever the music is supposed to feel like. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. And philosophy is make the other guy sound good. Yeah. Yeah. I love sometimes that. Sometimes I don't always follow, but at least I know it and I go, stop that. <laughs> you know? If somebody yeah. else tells me to stop, you know, I mean, I'll go stop that. You know? When it comes to um, drum drum tones, um, recording or live for that, for that matter, um, you know, not not being a drummer, but having played with, you know, drummers my, my whole life, it's, you know, I've, I've, I'm, a, I'm a very much a, a, a tone nerd, and I'm always fascinated by, you know, how drummers tune their, their drums or how they how they sound on recordings. Do you have, do you have one basic approach to, to getting a drum sound? Or does that change? Is, is that is that fluid as, as well? What, what, and this, this could, you can answer this any way you like, this could apply to, to live or, or recordings. But I'm just curious, like when it comes from the tonal perspective, how do you determine what direction you're going in? I tune until it sounds good to me. So to get a nice resonant pitch, you know, usually it's like, that would be a fourth between these two or. Oh, so you're, you are being very specific with the, with the intervals. So that's, you know, soldo, soldo, you know, and I mean, that really just happened to be that way. Cause when I started tuning, I didn't, wasn't even aware of it. And then I went, oh, well, you know, and then when I had four drums, it was like the Star Spangled Banner. Dun 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 You know, whatever. You know, I mean, if I had four people, you know, it just happened to be that way. Yeah. It was from what I hear on records. I go, and I was unaware of the I just tuned them to the pitches that I liked on records, and they happened to be a fourth. Interesting. When I, I I analyzed after the fact. Yeah. You know what I mean? And uh, but it was just totally. <laughs> I play by ear. I tell you. <laughs> and um, and then just refined it from there. You know, I mean, it, uh, and it, it it's changed since the late seventies and the eighties because. You know, the, all that dead sound with the carpet on the wall, back of the studios and all mm. that. And thank goodness all that changed, you know? Yeah. So do you prefer, in general, just a, a more open type of a, a drum sound? Oh, yeah. Yeah. But if you want a dead one, I'll give it to you. You know? Yeah. It's fine. You know, I mean, I have no problem with it. You know? So how have you, you're obviously there in your drum studio. What was, how have you configured your, your, your room to sound a certain way? Does your room sound open naturally? And if so, how do you, how do you get a deader sound? Uh, well, so far everybody's happy with the sounds that I've gotten. So mm -hmm. I just leave it just like this, you know, and <clears throat> we just built this room and I, uh, just put these baffles up on the wall just to deaden the sound a little bit yeah. until I like the sound. And then when I had it, I, I recorded the drums and sent them to some engineers in Los Angeles, and they all said, the room sounds great, the drums sound great, don't change anything. Yeah. So in some ways, ignorance is bliss. Yeah. You know? a, lot of, a lot of musicians, uh, I, I think, fail to appreciate 
how important the sound of the room is. It sounds kind of funny, right? On the outside, it's like, well, how does a room have sound? But, sure. but it really does. Like you're, the room reacts to to what you're doing. I mean, I notice the same thing if I'm recording vocals, you know, here or um, miking a bass amp. It's like, you know, the the room, the environment has a sound to it. It's a very important part, right? Yeah, I mean. I just hear how it sounds, you know, acoustically, like in the room. When I hear, it, I go, "Oh man, that sounds too live to me." I don't even know how it's going to translate over the mics. Yeah, you know, I just go, I, you know, just like the way you adjust in in any um, live situation. You know, yeah. the drummers have it definitely in the main. Yeah. Now, now we're talking without in ear monitors, okay? Sure. We're sure. the ones that, with, if you have, we're the ones that really have to adjust. And play the room, so to speak. Mm. I mean, within, of course, if you're in a big concert hall, <laughs> you can't tell what's going on. But if you're like in a club or a small theater, you know, you're going to adjust, you know, sometimes some parts of the room in a club, the drums down, you know, on stage. I remember back in the day, you know, playing like Dante's in Los Angeles and the Baked Potato, there'd be a sweet spot on the stage and you, I remember I used to try and find that to where it would, the drums would sound the best, would feel more comfortable to play. Yeah. There I go. I'm veering off again. But the thing is, is just, I just listen. I mean, that's what I, I'm pretty, uh, like I said, I guess I should say meat and potatoes kind of guy, you know? Yeah. I'm a caveman. <laughs> I really am. I'm like, you know, I, except my, I, I'm doing this right now, but my bat, you know, when I walk, I walk upright, but pretty much I'm definitely chromatic. <laughs> Stuff, you know? One of the, one of your innate impressive abilities um, that I've always noticed is, is regardless of the dynamics, the level of dynamics you're playing with, you can, you still are able to play with um, an intensity level that is, that is super un undeniable. How does a, not all drummers can, can do that. You know, like some, some drummers, they, if they, if they're playing in an in intense or fashion, like it's, it's, it's always loud or, um, right. <clears throat> you know, like they're, the dynamics have, have an influence on the, um, what am I trying to say? Yeah. Like, like the intensity, how do you accomplish what you do in terms of you could, you could be playing super, super quiet, but it's still just kind of keeping, keeping me at the edge of my seat, you know, like focused in, where does that, how does that happen? Well, thanks. I learned that from playing with Joe Farrell. I don't know if you know who Joe Farrell is. Mm -hmm. and for those who don't know, I mean, he was one of the best leaders I ever worked for. Uh, Joe played, well, first of all, after Train died, he did two records, one called The Ultimate. It was Elvin Jones, The Ultimate. And I can't remember the other. They did two. It was Jimmy Garrison, Elvin, and Joe. Mm. And the first one was called The Ultimate. And the second one was, uh, I have both records. Anyway, if you, if you can find them, get them because they're amazing. Anyway, and then, of course, he was on, he was in the first Return to Forever, uh, Return to Forever record in Lives of Feather. And um, so anyway, uh, I was in his band until he passed away and um, learned so much from him. And that group was myself, Kei Akagi on piano and keyboards and uh, Bob Harrison on bass. Before Bob, you know, Patitucci, hmm. played, a young John Patitucci. We were all young then. Uh, and um, 
he taught us so much without being, you know, invalidating. You know, invalidating. He just say, <laughs> like then once Joe said, Joe said to me, he goes, he goes, Tony, he says, man, when I play, when you play a drum solo, don't play that tiddlywink shit. You know, I'm <laughs> developing a solo. You know, he says, when I play with Elvin, man, he played flat out for five minutes, man. And I said, okay. So we finished. Uh, we used to stop. We used to play rhythming at the end of the night. So we're playing Cal State Northridge, and Joe at the time he had this like straw kind of hat and wore the smoked stained glasses, and he had you know the Nicorette holder, <laughs> you, know, you know, that's the whole thing. So he's going, "Thank you, ladies and gentlemen. Tonight we're going to feature our drummer Tom Breckline. He's going to play a drum solo." And then he looked at me, and go. A drum solo, <laughs> you know, and and so we played. We got da 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 right. So we played. Then I played the drum solo, and I just went okay, flat out. I played everything I knew, like yeah. as long as I could. And then all of a sudden, you know, da 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 boom, crowd goes nuts. Everybody gets up. You know, I'm sweating my ass off. We get up to take a bow, and I'm out of breath, and I look at him, and, like, and I go, I go, how was that? <laughs> he, took a bow, he, goes, he goes, yeah, Tony, it's getting here. <laughs> <laughs> that was Joe. I loved it. We, I remember I told him, I said, yeah, man, I can't. we had these conversations. And he goes, I said, man, I can't play jazz. He goes, who told you that, Tony? He goes, you play that shit just as good as anybody else does. You know? <laughs> you know, and that's the way Joe was. You wow. Know? But anyway, we used to play this place called Nucleus Nuance. And same configuration, me, Bob, and Kay. But the place was a small place. And we wouldn't play the normal Joe Farrell thing. We'd play standards. But the place had mirrors all over the place. So it was like, bang, you know? Yeah. So... And he, he, he was, I finally twigged that he was training us to do that. Hmm. Play with a high intensity, but control the room, hmm. you know, or in a low volume. And I said, okay, well, I got to do this. I, ha- I mean, I have no choice, you know. So I just made the proper motions that would do it until it became a kind of a natural thing. <clears throat> to this day, I still have to do that, but I'm just, or remind myself, I got pretty good at it. Uh, I'm getting back to that again, but um, yeah, but I can pretty much do it. I mean, back then, I'm not back then, but yeah, I can do it pretty good. So, right. so anyway, <laughs> and so that's how I learned how to do that. You know, it's like kind of pulling back, but staying relaxed, you know? Yeah. And, uh, and that causes, that causes the intensity. I mean, you, you intend something, you know, this is just a, you know, without. This is just a vehicle to communicate. Yeah. What you want to communicate musically. Yeah. You know, this is just. Well, it's you that's making the communication. You know, I mean, you know, uh, uh, it's. Uh, this is just all stuff, you know, and it's great to have. It's fun to play, you know. Yeah. But uh, communication is senior to the mechanics, mm. as a wise man once said. Yeah, that's great. 
know, it's like, um, and it's true, you know, you know, you get students to go like, how high should, should I, you know, I said, man, I said, it, technique, yes, absolutely, you should have technique. But when you start to play, this will tell you, these will tell you what these should be doing. Yeah. You know, because you're not always going to have the perfect, you're going to adjust. There are all these adjustments to make music. Yeah. You know what I mean? Absolutely. To emote something. What do you, uh, I know you, you teach, you teach drum lessons on a, on a regular basis to those that are fortunate enough to, to study with you. Um, I'm curious, do you, do you feel like in today's era, you know, of, of, of music, um, uh, if, especially if you're working with, with new drummers or young drummers, what do you think, uh, what do you think like some new players are lacking just as a, as, as a result of our, you know, virtual um information is everywhere and accessible immediately you know culture like do you feel there there are things that that you're having to help people with that they're missing just because of hyperactive uh consumption of of uh of music and, and everything else well i think you know there's pros and cons to everything you know and um definitely i said some kids today have more have a lot of facility you know yeah and some of them make really great music out of that facility you know uh it depends just the it's uh, you know um some people the, the one that made me really twig those but some uh, i don't think i think the one thing that they're missing is seeing live music mm. and that I, that's, a, that's a generality i can't make a generality because some of these kids can really play and have a musical thing you know yeah, you could, I could get I could get uh, philosophical and said some of these kids have done it before. If you know what I'm talking about. Yeah, and um, but uh, there are some, you know, there are some that uh, they learn the technical aspect and they don't see the form of the way the player is. Hmm. Like that's the one thing I when I started going to see Steve Gadd in the clubs. Also, Ayrto was another one. Ndugu, uh, Rick, and Rick Barada, and Chris Parker. <laughs> uh, I mean, Bernard Purdy. I mean, all those guys. Uh, Al Jackson. I mean, I just see, I've never seen Al Jackson play live, but you see them play. But you see the motions they're making. If you want to get technical about it, yeah. But it's, really, it's just the motions of the flow and the, how they're interacting with each other and yeah. how they're interacting with the with the other band. And uh, you know, musical choices, not technically, but sound wise. You know, and sure. And, and and you try and emanate that. You know, and I remember I'd be driving home and go, "Okay, what did he do there?" You know, oh man, he did that, and that felt great. Mm. He did that one shot, and that, and he didn't do it again. Mm. You know, it wasn't like there. I did a six-stroke roll with a paradiddle and a ha 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 a schmangy doodle and a you know heavy heavy <laughs> semi quaver. Yeah, you know, I said, man, he went up and he went down, and then he stopped. Man, what an effect that was. You know, I'm yeah. trying to remember all this stuff. You know, and keep my eyes on the road. You know. And until the next day when I could play, because you know, got neighbors and stuff. Yeah, yeah. So uh, that's the way 
I kind of learned. And I think if some – now, I'm, I'm not saying every player. Even to make a blanket's generality is silly, you know. Sure. But but addressed to those type of guys, and they probably are not aware that they're doing it. Mm-hmm. That's the other thing. It would, along with the technology, if you did that, you know, man, yeah, boom, opens up a whole lot of deal, you know, sure, sure, a lot of stuff, and um, that's the one thing when I was teaching uh, back in Los Angeles, I said, you know, um, okay, now you got the te- you got the thing, you got the you, you got the technical part, you got what he's doing, you got the groove. But now you have to, the most important thing is what is he intending? Yeah. What do you want to intend? Make it your own. Sure. Because you're not going to, I used to call it catalog play. Well, I think I'll do this now. And, yeah. Well, he's doing this now and uh, do that, you know. No, no, no. Leave the catalog at home. Yeah. You know, and if you don't know what to play, don't play it. Just, yeah. you know, but they don't like it. Good. Okay. So the next time you get a, another try at it. Right. So you, you made the move. You made the move from um, Los Angeles to, to Austin. Um, how, how long has it been now? Five years. Five years. So six years. How, how do you compare and contrast the, the music scenes in, the, in the, those respective cities at this point? You know, I, I, I actually couldn't tell you because at the time when I left, you know, things were in some ways drying up and, and, as far as uh, studio-wise, you could still get, I mean, I, you know, uh, I'm only speaking for myself, you know. Uh, and there weren't many clubs to play. Mm-hmm. This is 2016, 2015. And, uh, I mean, still great players and, you know, but, Pretty much, it was the baked potato. Yeah, and then there was some other clubs, but not like it used to have been. I mean, in the in the eighties, it was like, man, there's a lot of clubs to play. And then you do uh, studio work, stu- studio work that um, uh, you know you were called for, whether it was a jingle or something like that. So there was a lot of work available. So I, I was just, it was just. It was just time to leave, you know. I figured the cost of living would be better if we moved to to Austin, and and also I knew I knew I knew a lot of people. I knew Roscoe, I knew Eric Roscoe Beck, Eric Johnson, mm-hmm. uh, Dave Grissom, um, Denny Sywell, not Denny Sywell, Denny Sywell. Denny Sywell was a great drummer, played with Paul McCartney, mm-hmm. drummer. Uh, Denny Freeman, who's deceased now, um, knew Christopher Cross. Uh, uh, Joe Priestness, who's deceased now, is Eric's manager. Uh, and then I met some new friends, you know, and found out that there were incredible musicians here, you know. Yeah. But there were more clubs to play mm. as well, you know. And uh, I mean, it was like the old days in Los Angeles, you know. I'd, I'd come in if you didn't have a gig that week. You know, Monday somebody called, hey, can you make da-da-da? You know, and then all of a sudden you'd have a, I wouldn't say a full schedule, but you'd at least have three or four days worth of work or something like yeah, that. Yeah, yeah. You know, and then your schedule would fill up, you know. And this was only, this is five years ago. Yeah. 
<clears throat> so, <clears throat> you know, they say in Austin, if you don't like the weather, <clears throat> wait five minutes. <laughs> yeah. Well, I, 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 I modified that and said, well, if you if you're in Austin, you, you don't have a gig on uh, next week. Uh, wait a day. <laughs> yeah. yeah, that's excellent. You know, somebody will cancel. Then they'll da, 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 you know what? Yeah. You know? Yeah. And everybody plays, and everybody's super nice here. Yeah, really, and they're incredible players here. Yeah, it's a great, it's a great town. Not only is there incredible blues or a B, um, whatever you want to call it, but there's an incredible jazz scene here too. Mm. Young players are wow. kicking ass, man. Wow, that's amazing. Pretty, you know. So it's it's really wild. Well, just like Nashville. Yeah. You know yourself. I mean, uh, uh, you got Pat Coyle over there. You know. Yeah. The way- there's no shortage of great musicians here. That's that's, yeah, that's I mean, for sure. And they can play everything. Yeah. So, and you know, I don't try and discourage, you know, like some young players. Uh, they want to go to LA. I said, look, I have no idea what it's like now. I said, you go there and check it out for yourself. Yeah. You know, give it a try. And same thing if people want to move to New York. You know. Yeah. I mean, I mean, I can't. I can only give you my experiences. Yeah. So, you know, obviously times have, have changed. And so, yeah, no you know, people like yourself are, are doing so much, you know, more, you know, virtual and, and remote work. Now uh, talk a little bit about what you're doing now with your, with your studio and, and with your lessons. Cause I know, I know you've really, you've gotten incredibly dialed in there and you're, and you're tracking for folks there. Talk a little bit about that and, and how people, can actually get in touch with you to, to you know, utilize your, your talents. Well, when I built this, and I built this thing when we first came here and it's a good thing I did because in 2020, when the pandemic hit, uh, uh, and they sent us home, we had two weeks left with Eric Johnson. Mm. And then they sent us home. I said, well, what do I do now? So I had these drum videos. I put them up on the thing. I said, what the hell everybody else is doing? And I'll do it. And then I immediately got work. I got called by this fella from Jordan to do, not only to do, uh, not only to do a recording, but he wanted me to video it. I'm like, oh, I've never done that before. Well, so what I did. And then this production company called me, the same thing. Uh, Scientology Media Productions. It turned out to be, it was for a, a Stay Well concert, virtual that chick, uh, Mark Isham, uh, and some other global artists, uh, David Pomerantz, great songwriter. And so it turned out to be like one, two songs. I ended up being on nine. Nice. And they wanted me to fit. So I had to learn how to do that. And then I got, uh, and then all of a sudden I got a call from, this was all from like standing in the middle of the room going, well, what do I do now? <laughs> yeah. Okay, well, let's put this up. This seemed to be the logical thing to do. And then I, uh, and then later on, I think that April, I mean, uh, going into, wasn't twenty twenty one, Joey Vitarelli, who is a producer I worked for, who owns who owned Producers Workshop in L.A. So he, says, he goes, I, I get up at eight o'clock in the morning, and there's this text that goes, Tommy, is this you? And I put, Yeah, last I checked, what's going on? <laughs> I'm working with Sean Penn, and he's doing this new movie, Flag Day. And he says, can you do cues over there? I said, yeah, because I've never done this before, but let's do it. So I did five cues for that. And that worked out great. So I've gotten great reviews. That's awesome. 
not a bad one yet, or as far as I've been told. <laughs> and um, and now um, I'm currently working on a couple of tunes for Aldiniola. Excellent, coming out really good. We're going to resume next week because he's in he's on vacation, but. But uh, they're pretty much, well, the first one's pretty much there before we move on to the next one. And then I'm doing these other library things. For those of you who don't know what library things are, you know, it's like um, general music, not elevator music, but they use it for sports channels and mm. whatever like that. So I got called for that. I'm doing four of those right now. Right. But and then I get called to do artist stuff. You know, I mean, you know, guitar players, songwriters, mm-hmm. composers like yourself. And, I get calls for that. It's getting more. It's get starting to get more and more, and I, I love it. It's like it's almost by being a little shoemaker. I go into my little shop and <laughs> do the first tune, make sure everything's cool before I send it off, and go out, have a cup of tea, and then go back in again. And, That's awesome. You know, now how can people? Uh, where where do you? How can people get in touch with you if they want to hire you for this this type of stuff? Where do you like to send people? You can get in touch with me by email. It's uh, t breck t breckline t b r e c h t L-E-I-N at gmail.com or hit me up on Messenger, uh, Facebook Messenger. Yeah, those are the two. That's how you can get a hold of me. So Yeah. Well, I- man, this is this has been so great. Um, anything else you want to share with, with everybody that maybe you have coming up or any other project-oriented uh, stuff before well, we go? I'd like to say that you should hire Adam Nitty. <laughs> project. Oh, work. man. The mother father of a bass player. Oh, I'll send you your, your commission music. check. And he's or, a pleasure to play with. <laughs> bless you, and man. A great hang too. Oh, bless you, man. I'm I'm looking forward to to working with with you more in, in the future. And, and too, I hope um, soon. I really do. Man, I, I sure miss I sure miss going out on the road with you. But yeah, we had some, we had some blessings. We did. Me and Scott. <laughs> yeah, it was a, it was a great time. <laughs> I'll be a lot of minutes, which is my twenty minutes. You know, <laughs> you allow me five minutes. Ten minutes later. <laughs> down there, down there, like, I'm coming. I'm coming. You know? <laughs> Scott, a, you know, eat something, and all of a sudden he starts putting salt on stuff. <laughs> what a pleasure, man. Well, thank you again so much for for blessing us with your time. I, I want to thank everybody for for tuning in and and uh, listening or or watching, depending on how you're receiving this this content and. Um, Tom, of course, we wish you all the best and and look forward to connecting again soon. So thank you again so much. Thanks, Adam. Thanks for having me. And all the best to you, too. Man, you're, you're so very welcome. Thanks again, everybody. Take care. We'll see you in the next episode. Bye bye.